If you have a copy of God's Word, let's open up to Luke chapter 2, a very familiar passage during this time of year as we look at the birth narrative, especially one that I love to uh, hear Linus read with the Charlie Brown Christmas when he walks to the beginning, uh, to the middle of the stage and he begins to read uh, this passage out of Luke. It's interesting, you may have seen an article floating around, it's the only time that Linus ever drops the blanket. If you go back and watch Christmas, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, remember he carries the, the blue blanket around as like a protection for him. And you'll notice when he goes to the middle of the stage and he starts reading this particular uh, passage out of the scripture, it's the only time Linus actually lays down the blanket. It's amazing when you think about it. A little bitty detail there, but one that matters a ton. This morning we're going to be in Luke's Gospel. We've taken a bit of a break from our long study through the Gospel of John. And so for the Advent series, we're using the hymn that we sang earlier, Of the Father's Love Begotten, as kind of a, a framework or a skeleton to kind of move towards the manger. And last week we talked about air before the worlds began. Today we're going to use a little phrase out of the second verse, The Babe, the World's Redeemer, first revealed his sacred face. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. If you have no idea where Luke is, it's okay. It's in the New Testament. Feel free to use the table of contents. You'll start flipping kind of in the back half of the Bible, and you'll get to Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. It's the gospel account that we're going to be in. Look for the big number two. That's the chapter we're going to be in, and we're going to start right at the beginning. And remember, Luke's gospel says someone is here right now. The Old Testament says someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say someone's here. The whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. And so the, who is that someone? Jesus Christ. And so as you're opening up to Luke 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, I want to tell you a story. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, really at the end of September, so a little bit over a month ago, rock and roll mega group The Rolling Stones played a sold-out show at Bank of America Stadium in Uptown Charlotte. We used to live near there. It's where the Panthers play on Sundays for the NFL, and so they have these massive concerts. As you can imagine, the Rolling Stones can pack out an arena. They've been doing it for decades. And so they came into town, and they played a packed-out stadium. And you think, big deal, they do that every week. And you're right. It's not really an unusual thing for the Rolling Stones to come to a big city and to play to a packed-out stadium. It's not a very rare occurrence. But what Mick Jagger, the frontman of the Rolling Stones, did after the concert was actually extremely rare, given the fame and notoriety of the band. I mean, it's one of the most successful, you know, profitable, whatever you want to say, kind of bands in uh, rock and roll history. And the thing that was so interesting and so rare about this particular evening in Charlotte was, you see, Mick Jagger went and had a beer in public and nobody noticed. Nobody. Nobody noticed. You can imagine normally mobs of fans would surround him and everyone would want to go get a selfie and then social media would blow up and, look, we saw Mick Jagger and check this out and look at what happened, but not tonight. It was a really unique night. You see, Mick went to a tiny dive bar on the outskirts of Uptown. I've actually driven by uh, this particular place in town. You have these big, two huge, massive buildings, and then this tiny little, it looks like a little piece of wood, they like slid in between these, these buildings. This is tiny little uh, dive bar in the middle, on the outskirts of, of Uptown. And see, what he did was he went there, he ordered a beer like a normal dude, and drank it outside, leaned up against the railing, surrounded by other people doing the exact same thing, and nobody noticed. 
The only reason anybody knew he was there is when he posted a picture of himself standing at the railing, presumably taken by maybe like a security guard or somebody that he was with after the fact. And then social media blew up. And the owner of the bar, who had actually left to run some errands during that particular time, um, said, I can't believe that I missed him. Even a few of the people that were there, I mean, this is a tiny, tiny little place, this tiny little front patio. He's standing leaning up against the railing, and there's like people right here, and there's like people right here, and it's Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, and nobody noticed. And it was only after the fact that they were like, I can't believe I was that close to him, and I never noticed it. I'm sure Mick enjoyed a few minutes of the normalcy and anonymity many of us take for granted. I don't know if you're anything like me, but when I show up to a restaurant, nobody cares. <laughs> you know, when I go shop at Walmart or get my car fixed, or nobody cares. It's kind of a thing we take for granted, anonymity. Um, and I could imagine Mick just enjoyed a few minutes of normalcy there when he was able just to kind of hang out that night. And so you think, what in the world does that have to do with anything related to Christmas? And we think about the Christmas season, it revolves around the advent. It revolves around the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. We looked at John 1 and the prologue that we've looked at before, and we began our study through John at the very beginning of the year. It says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And theologically, we're talking about the incarnation. Last week, we talked about who came, the divine, uncreated, eternal Son of God. And then we also asked why He came, to save us by living and dying in our place because we were incapable of doing it on our own. So last week, we looked at the who and the why. And if, you, and if you weren't here and you want to catch up on that, you can find it on our website. We've got a podcast. It's there. We'd love for you to follow along. But today, we're going to talk about how Christ came. So we saw the who and the why. Today, we're going to talk about the how. And as we'll see, the how was just as unexpected as Mick showing up in Charlotte. Most people completely missed it. Most people had no idea what was going on. And so, let's take that in our mind to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. I'm going to read it at a good clip, and let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to meet us here in His Word. May we receive it by faith. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, 
They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord this morning to help us receive his word by faith. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your coming into the world to rescue and redeem us. And we pray that you would take these uh, words from your uh, holy, inspired, inerrant word and that you would apply them to our hearts, O Lord. Father, we long to know more of you. And we pray and ask that your spirit would move in our hearts. Challenge us, change us, convict us, O Lord, whatever you see fit. Lord, help us to leave change just in some small way by your grace as we have said under your word. And we pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this morning, if you're a note-taking type of person, we're going to look at three quick things this morning. Number one, we're going to see that there was an overwhelming problem. An overwhelming problem. Number two, we're going to see that it was met with an unexpected solution. And then finally, our third point, we're going to see that there is a transformational call. So there was an overwhelming, pro- there was an overwhelming problem, there was an unexpected solution, And because of that, there's a transformational call. Let's look at that first point, an overwhelming problem. Have you ever seen one of those movies or read one of those books where most of of it is confusing? It doesn't make sense until you get to the last couple of pages or the last few minutes, and then suddenly you go, oh, now I get it. It all makes sense. All the confusing stuff finally at one point goes, oh, I get it now. We talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago in our study through Job, but it reminded me, and I mentioned this before, that you may have seen that movie, The Sixth Sense. It's a movie that's been out for a while, and you just watch the movie, and the whole time you're like, what in the world is going on in this movie? It's like a Bruce Willis movie, and it's The Sixth Sense, and the whole time you're going, what in the world is going on? And I'm not going to spoil it. It's really only in like the last couple of minutes of the movie that you go, oh, now I get it. It makes sense. All that confusing stuff, all of a sudden, it's like a light switch comes on, and you go, now I get it. We think about what's going on. I mean, these movies and books are hard to read sometimes because it just don't make sense that for hundreds of pages or hundreds of minutes in a movie, you're just wondering how any of it makes sense until that moment happens when you say, oh, now I get it. Now I see what you were up to. And what happens when you see the whole picture of the Bible? It's a big question. How does this Bible fit together? How do we make sense of it? Many of you grew up having or maybe still have no idea how the Bible fits together. You know you should read it, but you don't know how to read it. You don't know how it fits together. Towards that end, there's a couple of resources available on our website that you can read. There's actually a a seminar that I recorded on how to read and study the Bible on your own with a PDF that you can follow along. We're also going to offer this seminar and some resources and stuff in our Coal and Iron Building moving forward downtown to, to help people understand how the Bible fits together. And you look and you're reading the Scripture, and certain passages can seem tricky or confusing on their own. But, when, but they only make sense when applied to the larger story of redemption. And you, move a little, you learn a little bit more as you move forward, as the Scripture just kind of unfolds. And what you see when you understand the Bible as one interconnected story is you see that God is not chaotic. He is orderly. He is purposeful in all that He does. You can see how God has been bringing about His rescue plan from before creation. 
And all of these accounts in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they come alive. Why? Because you see them as one interconnected story of redemption that is still being unfolded today. Suddenly, the 66 books of the Bible suddenly become, oh, one larger story of redemption. And you see that there are promises made. There are promises made in the Old Testament, promises fulfilled in the New Testament, and there are promises still yet to come that we lean into because we see the promises in the past fulfilled. We say, Lord, if you've been faithful to this point, why would you seek to be, why would you cease to be faithful moving forward? Suddenly you see the Bible and it all clicks together. You also see how God has been using messy, broken people to accomplish his sovereign plan for his glory in his providence. And this is good news for us, because I don't know if you're anything like me. I'm a messy, broken, messed up person. I'm not perfect. And I'm grateful that the Lord has chosen in his grace to use other imperfect people just like me to accomplish his work of redemption in this world. And isn't it amazing that the Lord has a part for all of us to play in his kingdom? There's no little people in his kingdom. The good news, and this is a big deal this morning when we think about how the scripture fits together. The good news for us this morning is that God's plan is not contingent upon the greatness of the object, thankfully. It is contingent upon the greatness of the giver. That means is the plan, God's plan of redemption is not contingent upon how awesome we are. What it is contingent upon and what, what it is grounded in is how good and great and mighty he is. All that to say, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Let me give you some examples from the Bible. Think about in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fall into sin, a page and a half in, a page and a half in the Bible, and God promises a redeemer. A few chapters later, Genesis 17, God promises to make a 99-year-old shepherd named Abraham the father of a great nation so numerous it can't be counted, and his response is to laugh. You, are you kidding? Think about Exodus 3, God called an old shepherd named Moses to lead his people out of Egypt and into the land God had promised them. Deuteronomy 7, the whole book of Deuteronomy is second law, Deuteronomos. The whole book of Deuteronomy is a second chance. That's what that whole book is. I'm going to give you the law again. I'm going to give you a second chance. You think about in Deuteronomy 7, God chose the Israelites, this weak, small nation with no military power, as the chosen recipients of his covenant promises. Think about the Old Testament book of Judges. What a train wreck. The whole thing is a train wreck from beginning to end. But yet, you see how God is using a bunch of mess-ups to lead his people. And God is still sovereign and working behind the scenes. You see 1 Samuel 16, David the shepherd, the youngest and weakest son of Jesse, chosen to be the king of Israel, and from this line would come the greatest king who would ever live. He wasn't even invited to the initial party. They said, where's David? Go get him. He's out keeping the shepherd, keeping the sheep. We're like, him? Really? Yeah, him. God chose to use him. Think about Micah 5, Bethlehem which is too little to be numbered among the tribes of Judah, is chosen by God to bring forth the greatest king ever, Jesus. Hundreds and hundreds of years had passed. The people heard about the coming of the greatest king who would ever live, the one who would truly redeem them from their sin. They had been given the Ten Commandments. They found that they couldn't keep them. They had the law of God and they tried to keep it with quote-unquote good living. And it only showed them how much they lacked. It showed them that they needed to be rescued. 
It showed them that they couldn't keep that law, that God was holy, 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 and they were, no, they were not, 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 as we've said. The weight of the law pressing down upon them. They needed to be rescued. You can almost hear the people of the Old Testament straining to hear the answer. When will this great king finally come? When will, be we, will we be rescued? When will we be finally freed from the demands of the law that feels like a weight when, when, O oh Lord, will this great Redeemer come? This one that was promised back in Genesis 3. When will He come? Speak, Lord, tell us. And what was the answer? Silence. 400 years between the writings of Malachi and when John the baptizer comes on the scene. 400 years of this. But then, but then, look at Luke 2, verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. The Jesus Storybook Bible, when talking about the incarnation, said, Jesus came into the world as quiet as falling snow. Into the world he answered, he entered. And you think, really? A baby? A helpless baby? From a poor family? In a throwaway town like Bethlehem? Really? John chapter 1, verse 46. It's asked, the question is asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is a town most scholars think was just about 2,000 people in Jesus' day. We think about Fort Payne. Bethlehem was, uh, Fort Payne is seven times bigger than Bethlehem. This tiny baby, torn, born in a tiny town to a poor family. Now you think about how would we have written this story to make it more credible in the world's eyes. Think about if you were the one writing the fairy tale, if you were the one who was writing the story of this great redeemer who would come, how would you write the tale? Well, of course, it'd be a mighty king from a really powerful and well-connected family who rises to power and he rules over the largest city in the known world and he defeats all of his enemies while simultaneously preserving peace in his empire. And I'm sure there'd be like a slow-mo explosion scene where he rides away with some guitar riffs going on in the background. It would be epic if we were the ones who were putting it all together. Then what would happen is this one would rule for 50 years and then he would be publicly taken into heaven and all captured on video to be put on YouTube for everyone to know. That's how we would write the story if it were left up to us. But that's not how God works, is it? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You see, we were expecting this great and powerful king with this great army to process into town and claim the crown for his own. We were expecting greatness, but God sent a servant. Imagine trying to sell this as a Disney movie. Imagine going into the room where you're pitching this to the executives. Hey, I've got this great movie idea. Instead of a knight in shining armor riding in on a white stallion, the man of the hour would be a poor carpenter's son riding on a little donkey. And he'd be born to a really poor family. And nobody would even really know that he was there. Doesn't that sound like a great movie? You'd probably be ushered out immediately. And people would be asking you, why are you wasting my time? 
Now, a quick reminder as we think about what's going on in the world around us this time of year. Skeptics look at Christianity this time of year and ask, is this it? Is this it? You built your whole religion around the coming of a baby? Really? Is this your great king? All he ever did was get born in a barn, grow up, and get killed by his own people. Is this all you got? You keep all of that quote-unquote religious stuff. I'll, I'll stick to the tree and the gifts and all that. You might be here this morning checking out this whole Christianity thing, and you might be even asking some of those same questions. Is this really it? Is this why Christians get together on Sunday mornings because of this? It doesn't make any sense. Maybe your friends think you're crazy and foolish to believe it. They tell you to give up on that myth and to step into reality. When we think about the Christmas story and the incarnation and the, the advent of Christ, we believe that all of humanity hinges on not a myth, but the historical birth of Jesus Christ in real space and time. We believe that all of humanity hinges on this, his coming into the world. We believe that all humanity hinges on a little baby born to a poor family in a throwaway town, that the incarnation was a public statement of God to meet our greatest need, that only he could do it. We could not do it on our own. So Jesus had to come. And he was born and lived a real life as a man. Again, we've said the question is not over whether a guy named Jesus lived and walked uh, in the ancient Near East. There's no debate over that. Of course, there was a guy named Jesus who did that. The question then becomes, was he the son of God? And over and over again in John's gospel, people are asking that question. Is Jesus saying, I'm the son of God? And he gets hated for it. We need to wrestle with the importance of the incarnation in our lives because we remember our greatest need. Many, of, many people think of God, and if they grant that he exists, they see him as distant and uncaring. Kind of the great objection is he's this deistic watchmaker who just kind of put this whole thing together, wound it up, set it on a table, and walked away. And he's completely disconnected from anything around, if they'll grant that God exists and he made stuff. Oh, he's just distant and uncaring. Have you ever struggled with feeling like God is hiding? Have you ever wondered if God really cares? Does he really see? Does he care about what's going on? Is he hiding? You ever ask those questions? I have. What does this little baby tell us about how God interacts with humanity? Again, John gives us a little glimpse of this in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation to appease, to regain favor, to be the propitiation for our sins. It's not that we loved Him. It's that He loved us. And He sent His Son into the world to live the life that we could never live and die the death that we totally deserved so that we could have peace with God, a grace and mercy that none of us merited, none of us earned. You might be here thinking, and you might have grown up, that Christianity is just checking a bunch of rules and doing a bunch of right stuff. And if the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then suddenly you punch your ticket to heaven. That is not how the gospel works. 
The gospel works when you admit and recognize. Think about we took membership vows. What was the first membership vow? Do you see yourself to be a sinner in desperate need of God's grace? You have to admit you're bad. You have to admit you can't do it. That's what makes the gospel work. I, 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 I listened to a song. It was kind of a reworking of O Come All Ye Faithful this past week. And they went back and they reworked the lyrics a little bit. It said, O come all ye unfaithful. Come all ye unfaithful. Come to Christ. That's the gospel. We come to Him in our brokenness and our sin and our need, and we say, I can't do it on my own. Then, all of a sudden, this little baby born to a poor family becomes your only hope because He did what you couldn't do so that you could have a right relationship with God. It's the gospel. It's not a bunch of rules. It's Jesus. Like I've said before, you don't need six ways to be a better husband, father, whatever it is. You can't be. You need Jesus. That's what you need. It's our greatest need. We need Jesus. We need to be set right with this holy God. And we have to admit and realize that we can't do it ourselves. That's why the manger matters. That's what we say. If you don't have a manger, you don't have a cross, you don't have an empty tomb. They all go together as a package deal. The incarnation absolutely matters. It matters because God chose to redeem us through it, through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Athanasius said. He was a 4th century bishop of Alexandria. He wrote a really famous kind of book and treatise called De Incarnatione, the Incarnation. Here's what he wrote. I'm not going to read it in Italian. I can't. He said, He, Jesus, saw how the surpassing wickedness of men was mounting up against them, He saw also their universal liability to death. All this he saw, and pitying our race, moved with compassion for our limitation, unable to endure that death which should have the mastery, rather that his creatures should perish in the work of his Father, for men come to naught. He took to himself a body, a human body, even as our own. You see, the Bible's message for Christmas and just in general The Bible's message is this. You are way worse off than you thought. You are way worse than you could ever imagine. But you are way more loved than you could ever imagine, and God has made a way. Since you are way more wicked, way more evil, way worse off than you could ever imagine. But yet, because of Christ, and only through Christ, you are way more loved and accepted than you could ever dream in the gospel. How has God made that way? Through a little baby born to a poor family from a throwaway town. And God reached into our humanity and and showed us grace. Those who are wandering around in darkness, on them a light has shone. By grace, God has spoken and moved into our world. Now how do we live in light of this? How does this impact the way we live with others? Why should we care? As we see that we had an overwhelming problem. We have a sin problem that we cannot deal with on our own. But the solution to that is absolutely unexpected. That it was a little baby that the Lord, that God the Father sent His Son. And, and the Son, you ever think about this, volunteered for it. Did you ever think about that? He volunteered to come and to die in your place. That we needed... The unique Son of God, truly God and truly man, was the only one that could redeem, the only one that could atone for our sin. Just an absolutely unexpected solution. This baby being born. But yet, 
how do we respond to this? This is this transformational call we're talking about, this third point. Transformational call. You see, the incarnation shows us that we needed rescue from the very word go. And often we focus so much on the shepherds and the manger, we gloss right over an important part of this narrative. Look at verse 9. Let's start in verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with what? Fear. <laughs> Awestruck. As if lying dead. The angel, and this was just an angel. Came, and they fall on their face, and they're, they're absolutely just terrified. I mean, put yourself there. Think about Isaiah 6, where the, the prophet sees a vision of God's throne room, and he responds, Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. You see, God's holiness demanded a response to the sins of man, and the shepherds thought that the hammer was about to come down on them. But, look at verse 10. How, how does the angel respond? They fall on their face. Verse 10, and the angel said to them, What? Fear not. Why? For behold, I bring you good news. That's the Greek word, euangelion. I bring you the good news. Of what? Of great joy that will be for all the people. It's a message of joy and grace. And the Greek word for good news, euangelion, there is the angel's message. Fear not, I bring you the gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. How did they respond to the angel's message? Look at verses 15 through 17. It says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. How did they respond? They dropped everything, and they headed to Bethlehem to see for themselves. And the same gospel promise proclaimed to the shepherds is the same gospel promise that we live under today. It is a gospel of great joy. We, as the redeemed people of God, how do we respond? We respond with great joy for all that God has done. We say, thank you, Lord. You've been so kind. You've been so good. And you think about, how does this change the way we live? When anxiety threatens to crush you, fear not. When you are rejected by those around you, fear not. When all you want to do is just throw in the towel, fear not. When you say, many, when many will say that the incarnation doesn't matter, but as we've said before, it's our only hope. Because the gospel of grace has broken through and it calls us to live in light of that grace that has been given to us through Jesus Christ. I'm almost done. Hang with me. Here's what Tim Keller said in his book. Do you know that he has stage four pancreatic cancer right now? Tim Keller. And you know what he's saying? <laughs> the Lord is still good. Here's what he says in his book, Hidden Christmas. He says, no one's really neutral about whether Christmas is true. If the Son of God was really born in a manger, then we've lost the right to be in charge of our lives. Who can be objective about a claim like that? If it's true, it means that you've lost control of your life. You see, the incarnation calls us to live differently. Our Savior has come to rescue and redeem us, and He sits on the throne of heaven at the right hand of God. And if that's true then that means you're not the sovereign of your own life. It means that you surrender to Jesus, the King. And He calls us to live differently in this world. He calls us to think about our jobs and our families and our money and all that we have. We're called to think about it differently. 
because it's all under his lordship. And you think about how this changes the way we think about our world and our lives and everything. Our hope rests on a little baby born to a poor family from a throwaway town who grew up to die in our place. Changes everything. To accomplish what you and I could never do. To live the life that we couldn't live perfectly in obedience to God's law. His holiness demanded it. We could never do it, but he did it. To die the death that we deserved so that we could get the grace that we don't deserve. You think about the end of it all. People have said, you know, you let's say you die and you go stand before the pearly gates and you're asked, why in the world should I let you into heaven? Your answer is not, look at all the good that I've done. The answer is, because I'm with Jesus. Because he told me. That's what makes the gospel amazing. It's not about our work. It's not about our effort. Like we said last week, the message of Christmas is not try harder. It's fear not. That's the message. Our hope does rest in this little baby born to a poor family from a throwaway town who grew up to die in our place. Again, here's what Tim Keller said. Christian faith is not a negotiation. It's a surrender. And our greatest motive for surrendering to him cannot be for what he will do in us. It must be love him for what he did for us. Changes everything. What he has done for us. As we close, let's read the text from the call to worship. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It's also our memory verse. I just want you to think about how does the incarnation change the way we live in light of this world? What do we rest in? Why should we care? So what? Think about all that's going on in the world in your own life and ups and downs and the waves of anxiety and fear and why? How do we respond? What hope do we have in the midst of that? Right here. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. For now we have peace with God through what he has accomplished on the cross, and that peace has no ending. Shalom forever if you are in Christ. And he sits on the throne of heaven, and he's never going to give it up. We say, thank you, Lord. I'm so glad that you're in charge. Help me to rest in all that you are. Don't you see that the message of Christmas then is fear not? Why? Because your king sits on the throne and he's coming back again. And if he, if he was promised, he said, hey, I'm going to come. And then he actually did it. Why in the world do we have any doubt when he says, I'm going to come again? And we say, come, Lord Jesus. But help me to be faithful in the meantime. But I'm grateful that it all rests upon your shoulders and not my own. That's why the gospel's freeing. It's not about you. It's about him and what he's done. And our response is fear not. Fear not. Regardless of the circumstances, fear not. Take heart. Don't give up. Rejoice. Your king has come. And he's coming again. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great work that you have accomplished for us, O Lord. Doing what we could never do coming in flesh to rescue and redeem us and to save us, to live the life that we never could. Because your holiness demanded it. Your holiness demanded perfection. Lord, help us to remember that the only thing that we bring to the salvation equation is the sin that made it necessary. And Lord, help us to glory in your cross. 
Help us to stand amazed at all that you have done. As you came and you, you came in flesh and you lived the life that we couldn't so that you could die in our place. Lord, it just takes our breath away. Lord, help us to see that you're always good and that you're sovereign and you are working a plan of redemption that if we had full knowledge of it, we, would have, we wouldn't believe it. It's so amazing. Lord, help us to stand in awe of your grace and your mercy. Lord, help us to lean into the promise of Christmas that it is not try harder, do better, pull yourself up, be a good little boy or girl. That's not the message. The message is fear not because our King has come into the world, our Savior, this Redeemer, who in real space and time revealed His sacred face for us. Lord, we have peace with You because of Him, and we're grateful for that. Father, please be with us. Encourage your hearts. Holy Spirit, please be at work. Comfort and encourage us. Jesus, may you receive all the glory for all that you have done. We pray and ask these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen.